The Athletic. Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. This week, we are talking aerodynamic testing, both on four and two wheels, with the help of six times Olympic gold medalist Chris Hoy. How exactly do you generate live aero data and what is it used for? And Gary Anderson takes a look at the latest Formula One car upgrades from the French Grand Prix and answers a question about the value of teams testing old F1 cars. Hello, I'm Ed Straw and welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. As always, I'm joined by the star of the show, Gary Anderson, a man who has experienced the highs and lows of Formula One from the pit wall in his many decades in motorsport. Well, hello, Gary. I'm guessing this is very much a time of year when you don't miss being there in the garage and there on the pit wall, given the heat at Paul Ricard last weekend and what we're expecting in Hungary. Yeah, I mean, the heat at Paul Ricard it was, must have been pretty rough for everybody. Um and it's it's there's so many races now during the season. It obviously, just there just isn't a break. So you you just got to keep on firing on and count get the count down to the uh, to the summer break for everybody. And Hungary is obviously the the trigger for that. So everybody will be pushing pretty hard to get the best out of their car they can for that uh, before they go into the summer break. I'm not quite sure what happens because um, obviously there's there's updates in place coming through somewhere along the line. And they'll probably be ready for for spa now, and that's whenever we're getting more of the the porpoising regulations control from the FIA. So that's going to be interesting. So uh, yeah, I suppose I'm not missing it too much. <laughs> well, of course, all the teams do get the mandatory two week shutdown, so that's something. But there'll be plenty of work either side of that. Well, let's go for our traditional opener of finding out what technical topic has caught your eye in Formula One this week, Gary. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of teams arrived at Paul Ricard with with updates. And I, I think, you know, there's McLaren one have really sort of gone completely around their car. Um, I'll come to that one first. They, they've changed the, the flow structure around the side pods instead of really having it as a, you know, taking the flow around the side of the side pods in at the Coke bottle area. They're now bringing more flow over the top of the side pod. And that is uh, the solution. I think is the is the right one to go for now because anything you're doing with bringing the floor around the side um, through and through into the coke bottle will affect the amount of flow that's leaking under the floor. So you want to minimise that, or you want to keep it as consistent as possible. I suppose is the best way of putting it. You don't necessarily want to minimise it, but you want to make, keep it consistent. And by bringing the the mass flow over the top of the side pod, the coke bottle. As a low pressure area, it'll always be pulling flow through there because it, you know, it wants to get flow through there to help the diffuser. Um, so at least there's not so many changes on the uh, on the leakage into the underfloor. So you, you get a more consistent car, you get more consistent data, and it will actually improve your understanding of the car and the and the direction you need to take next. But the other one for me is is the Ferrari upgrade, the leading edge of the side pod. Now, if you imagine. These cars are, are what they call ground effect cars. So there's a diffuser at the back of the car. And that, that's the size of that, size of the, the, the exit is defined in the regulations and everybody is at the maximum. There's very, very little you can do at the rear of the car to, to change that. Um, the main thing will be how the beam work, the beam wing works with the, the diffuser. So you've got that, then halfway up the car, somewhere you know, around about where the, just behind where the driver sits probably is what you call the throat and that's the lowest part of the floor that's the parts lowest to the ground and that's where the air flow accelerates through that section uh, and gives you the downforce 
because it's the biggest restriction. So you're trying to take as much flu through there as possible um, and make it travel as fast as possible, generating low pressure, which sucks the car down to the ground. And then at the front of the side pod, you've got the inlet. Now, the inlet can be divided up into these... There's there's four sections, basically. There's, you're allowed to have splitters in, in, that, uh, in that area to separate the airflow. Now, most of those splitters at the moment um, are used to turn airflow out the side of the car, that front corner of the floor, um, meaning that the airflow that's on the, sort of on the centre line of the car, I suppose you might call it, at the front, is the airflow that the diffuser is using to, um, to create the downforce. You know, if you didn't have those splitters and you just had a very open inlet, there'd be far, far too much flow available for the diffuser to do any work on it to accelerate that flow. So you have to restrict the flow that's going in that the diffuser can work on, and you have to do something with that flow, which is turn it out the sides. So uh, Ferrari's been working in that area. They've rejigged their splitter positions. They've also lowered the outside part of the floor. It was at a sort of 45-degree angle before. Now they put a step in it, so they're taking more flow over the top of the, the outside of the floor. Uh, and less into the front of the of the floor. So, for me, that's a good change because, as I say, there's 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 certain constrictions within the regulations for the for the underfloor, and you can't change the as I say that you can't change the exit size. You can really do very little with the throat location and the the height of the throat, um, and the inlet is a big thing. So, not many teams have really attacked that area yet. But I think we'll see more of it as teams get a better understanding of how the, the flow works in that area. So I think McLaren, uh, I think uh, the Ferrari step is a good step. Um, and obviously, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of situations where um, they were fairly dominant in, in Paul Ricard until Charles Leclerc made his mistake. But Carlos Sainz, I think, backed it up. He kept coming from the back of the grid. So they, they have a fairly performant car there. And I think I'd expect big things from them in, uh, in Hungary. I guess that's the positive for Ferrari, isn't it? The car has been strong this year. The development's been good. So that side of things has been really good. It's just the making the most of it that's been the issue. Yeah, you know, if you just take performance, which obviously, you know, these other things happen. Reliability issues will happen to any team. Um, you, you don't want them to happen, but they do happen. Um, and I suppose we should say driver errors shouldn't happen. But we are, you know, we are still talking about driving these cars on the limit I mean you know you're, you're not driving them absolutely flat out but when you are when you are going quickly you are going quickly so you know the old mistake will happen we've seen it before sometimes you get away with it if it's just a, a lock up um, if it's just running wide or whatever but obviously Charles Leclerc didn't get away with it by spinning where he spun that so sometimes it has to accept that but the one thing that's impressed me with Ferrari and with Red Bull obviously is how they have been competitive all year long you know they've been able to battle each other with their developments and still be you know in close company all the time and the thing that reassures me of that as well is looking at Mercedes you know they're a top team and whenever we talk about the teams what we talk about when you fall out of that sort of top three team uh, area you get to a level of inconsistency we always talk about the inconsistency of you know Alpha Tori or Alpine to an extent or or um, McLaren even the thing about those three top teams is they're not inconsistent and again Mercedes they're having problems this year but since the start of the season no matter what circuit they've been to they've been about you know 1% off the front pace 0.9% of a percent or 1% off 
the leading car. So it does show that as a team, Mercedes can get the best out of their car and their drivers obviously can get the best out of their car. It's just that their best isn't good enough to bring the competition right to the front. So um, that's the thing that the smaller teams need to do is not necessarily make the car faster, but just make sure they get the best out of it every weekend. And that, that's vitally important because no matter how quick the car is, if you don't get the best out of it, you fall behind. And the interesting thing is with Ferrari and Red Bull is that they've got quite different concepts, very, very different performance profiles, yet the the pace is still relatively similar. They generate that speed very, very differently. It's interesting with the the side pod concepts because you talked about the, the switch to that sort of downwash approach that McLaren had, but we see Red Bull with that, whereas Ferrari have, have got that slightly different approach. They've got a bit more inwash, you could say, in the lower part of the side pod than the top surface channeling the air towards the the beam wing rather than sending it downwards yeah they do i mean it's there's a a visual thing to be honest you know ferrari do a lot of work um at the front of their side pod they turn that airflow um out dramatically they they flow over the top of the car you know it's the most abrupt probably there is at that front front section of the under the undercut on the leading edge of the side pod so they're doing a lot of work with the much more work than anybody else probably with the um, front corner of the underfloor. So they have less work to do with the, the, the rear half of the diffuser and the underfloor to, to generate the downforce they require out of it. So it is a very different concept. Um, I was, you know, about at the beginning of the season, I was saying it was, you know, it, it looked to me like it was two ideas that didn't quite meet up in the middle. But now you've seen it for a bit, you know, you can understand that that's, that's really what they do have. They have a front end that's working very hard for, in its own right. And then they have got a rear end that's working very hard in its own right. So the two do meet up somewhere. And they've always got on top of it. And their they're sort of bathtub, side pod top, or whatever you like to call it. You know, others have copied that section where they're raising the outside section of the, uh, of the, the side pod to, to stop the flow from spilling over into the Coke bowl. And, you know... Ferrari have done that more than others so they're they definitely started the season with a car that they understood and was was right up there but as you say you know Red Bull and and Ferrari both have different philosophies um it's it's genuine that you know Red Bull have got the fastest car on the straight these these days they didn't used to be like that but they are now uh, so they've gone for a you know efficiency package um and it's where you make up your lap time but I think Ferrari are coming back at them as far as that straight line speed is concerned. So it's not such a big advantage as it was four or five races ago. So it'll be interesting to see what happens after the summer break when we hit the the tracks like Spa where the midsection is all about downforce and the, fir- the first section and the last section is all about straight line speed. So that's the, one of the more interesting tracks when we get there and see who's who's got on top of the balance of both because everything's a, a, you know, everything's a compromise and uh, it looks like the compromise at the minute is race by race it's, it's a battle between those two well, let's move on to our main topic for the week which is about aerodynamic testing with the added twist of how that connects to the world of racing bikes of the push variety rather than motorized but we'll focus on the f1 side initially particularly when it comes to gathering that live aerodynamic data in f1 so gary how does live aero data collection work in f1 and why is it so important well, really, the, you know, the car is designed to operate in a, in a certain window um, and generate a certain amount of downforce and the centre of pressure will shift around the car depending upon the ride heights of the car or 
or the, the attitude of the car under braking or accelerating. And the only way you know that really is is from data, looking at the data that the car is generating at that point in time. These cars have lots of uh, sensors on them to, to pick up that data, including sort of load cells in the push rods. So as long as you've got some pretty good tools to analyze it, you can make sure your car is within its working window. When the driver complains about understeer, you can see that your the car is either within its working window and you've got the front down force you thought you had, so the understeer is coming more from let's say a mechanical uh, uh, influence um, but if it's outside of its working window and you haven't got the, the, the front load that you think you have then you have to um, you can look at it and see why because mechanical and aerodynamic it gets very confusing as to which is which obviously we all talk about mechanical grip in, in low speed corners and aerodynamic grip in high speed corners but they do overlap each other so it's important to make sure that, that the car is working correctly and that the driver's comment is backed up by data, then you can fix it. If it doesn't, if the driver's, driver's comment doesn't get backed up by data, then you can't fix it. And really the same is true of a bicycle, you know. Um, at the end of the day, you're out there on a, on a bike to do the, the best job you can. Now the, the driver, uh, the rider, sorry, the rider position on the bike is critical to his, you know, to his muscle power. Make sure you get the best out of that. But all the best muscle power in the world you can lose a lot of it just from the rider's position not being correct aerodynamically. You know, so all these people go about designing and optimizing frames to be more aerodynamic, but you put this hunk of a rider like Chris Hoy on it, and at the end of the day, you know, he's about as aerodynamic as the back end of a bus. So you just need to make sure that he's in the best position. You know, you put a big hunk of a rider like Chris will say on the bike because of his muscle power, but you just need to make sure you're not giving all that away in with the... Uh, per aerodynamics everyone's very familiar with seeing these increasingly large and elaborate arrays of pitot tubes attached to formula one cars particularly in pre-season testing can you just explain about how these sort of sensors work and what data it actually generates what does the data look like and how do you put that into a usable form well the data you generate from a pitot is like pressure differential um you know there's a you see them on the side of an aeroplane um, same thing as you go in the door just have a look on the side of the airplane you'll see a pitot tube it's a right angle sort of tube sticking out there'll be a hole in the front of that and there'll be a hole in the side of it and basically you know the downforce is generated by the speed of the air of the car going through the airflow so unless you know what that airflow is then you you don't know what uh, the pressure is on on that side port of the of the pitot so that's why you got one heading straight forward. So if the wind changes, for example, if you've got a, a 20 mile an hour headwind and you're traveling at you know, 150 miles an hour and that 20 mile an hour headwind changes to a 20 mile an hour tailwind, you've got a 40 mile an hour difference in the speed. So when you're looking at data, you need to reference it to the, to the air speed that the pitot is seeing. And obviously that takes into account the wind direction. So a pitot is just a tool that tells you how much downforce you've got for that given airspeed that you're travelling at. It's not the car speed, it's the airspeed that you're travelling at. And the pitot is the thing that gives you that pressure differential across the port on the front of it and the port on the side of it. So you can see, because you know, you go out in one practice session and uh, you've got, as I say, a little bit of a headwind and you've got X downforce, you go out in the next practice session and you've got a little bit of a tailwind and you've got a completely different set of numbers. So a Formula 1 car is quite complicated that way because 
you know, if you've got a headwind, the whole car will generate more downforce um, because of the the car the the car thinks it's going faster than it really is. If you've got a tailwind, it will reju- lose rear downforce. So you've got to be very careful because um, a tailwind is, makes the car oversteery. A headwind will will make the car a little bit more oversteery because the front wing will work more efficiently. But in general, the whole car will work better. So there'll be a lot less percentage of oversteer with a headwind than there will be with a tailwind. So you need to take that all into account. And that's what you hear the engineers telling the drivers to, to um, you know, there's a bit of a tailwind in Eternal 11 or whatever. And that's just to be wary that, you know, you're going to lose uh, rear downforce. And again, it's the same on the bicycle. You know, you need to be able to tell the rider, you know, you need to bring your shoulders in a little bit or you need to do, you know, X, Y, Z, keep your thighs closer or your elbows in or whatever it is that you need to do to get the most efficiency out of the bike. And especially whenever you get, like, you know, um, time trials or straight sections where it's not about mountain climbing, it's about just good cadence, good power into the pedals, and you're just, all that power is just pushing against um, wind blockage. So you've got to try and minimise that wind blockage on the bicycle. So the real-time data from the from the bike will tell them exactly the same stuff. You know, you're you're letting your shoulders get too wide, you're, you're letting your elbows get too wide, whatever. You, know, you need to tidy that up because... One percent of your of your muscle power could be wasted very very easily. So uh, you need to just make sure you're on top of it all the time. Get the best out of it all the time. How much has this kind of technology evolved over the years in, in Formula One? I know you've got some good stories back in the 1970s of some innovative ways of trying to get some basic version of this kind of data with some very very rudimentary kit. Um, yeah, my, my first thing was a a piece of plywood with a. A clear plastic tube, a U-tube, um, sort of stapled onto the side of this bit of uh, this bit of plywood. One end of it went into the front radiator ducts, and one end of it went into a little area behind the driver's head, really, which was pretty nondescript. And it was filled with a uh, with a coloured fluid, a bit like uh, Ribena, I suppose. You know, other other drinks are available. Um, and basically, it was a little little uh, valve on it. So the driver would drive along at you know whatever speed he'd he'd then close the valve off, and when he came into the pits, we could see the pressure drop across this this tube. So it gave us an idea of the pressure that was in the uh, the radiator inlet. So we could move that pressure around to see um, you know where the, the the maximum pressure was in the radiator inlet and how the flow through the radiator was. So it's come on a long way since then. Um, you will see you know whenever you see one of these aero rakes on the car it's just a mass of pitot tubes and that's trying to pick up the direction of the flow and the and the velocity of the flow right over that that completely big rake you know you see it behind the car in front of a in front of the rear wheel or behind the front wheel um and it's not the it's not the on-car flow that is the the critical thing it's the off-car flow because the off-car flow can influence the on-car flow so you're trying to pick that up and see where your front wing wake's going and, and how it's being redirected by any sort of turning vanes that you have. Um, so basically from that, that, um, from that aero rake, there, there could be, you know, a hundred very, very small tubes, you know, one millimeter uh, tubes, basically going to um, a, a data logger that will, that will gather all that pressures, all those different pressures, and then you can bring that up on your data analysis screen and see how those pressures change 
relative to speed or relative to steering angle, um, uh, car attitude, under braking or under acceleration depends on what you're trying to look at. But you can bring up that that pressure trace across that that component, um, and then work out how you're going to try and optimize it, how you're going to try and move that off car flow a little bit due to you know let's say the trailing edge of the front wing um, flap you've got a lot of availability there to change the profile of it if you look at all the cars it's all different you know some of them are up in the middle and down at the ends or vice versa Um, so that's one of the areas where you'll spend a lot of time looking at the data from your aero rake um, that you have behind the front wheels because the front wing weight influences that dramatically. The front suspension components influence that dramatically. And then the front of the side pod has to deal with it. So you're trying to improve it for the front of the side pod. The big problem is that got that big aero rake, it will influence the flow as well. So, you know, you need to model that. When you're trying to match on CFD, you need to model the aero rake as well because that will influence the flow. So uh, it's a bit of a chicken and egg, you know, which come first. You get as much data as you can. You try and refine it then you'll get more data, you're trying to find it even further, and the more times you do it, the nearer to the real equations you get. Now it's time to hear from our special guests. And I say guests because we have two. The first is ex-Formula One aerodynamicist Dr Barney Garud, who worked for Mercedes, Ferrari, Honda, HRT and Super Aguri in F1, and was part of the Braun Dream season in 2009, And yes, I know we've mentioned three versions of the same team there. Today, he runs AeroSensor, a company he founded to create a portable aero performance optimization system for road, track and time trial cyclists. Joining him is six times Olympic gold medalist Chris Hoy, one of the all-time greats of track cycling and someone with a track record in motorsport too, having raced in the 2016 Le Mans 24 Hours and won the European Le Mans Series LMP3 driver's title. So it's over to Gary for his conversation with Barney Garud and Chris Hoy. So Barney, your uh, your background comes from Formula One aerodynamics, and uh, obviously we see in, in Formula One races these cars go around with these huge aero rakes on them and gathering data. How do you how do you go about that with a with, uh, bicycle cycling aerodynamics? Um, so in cycling, we um, <clears throat> a few years ago I had the idea of trying to measure aerodynamic drag on the bike. Um, my background is in the wind tunnel and at the track in Formula One. Um, where actually part of my job back then, we, we didn't use the PETA arrays so much back then, but I was using the aerodynamic data and other data on the car to calculate drag and um, downforce coefficients. So I, I thought about doing it on the car. Um, and what, one of the things that they're interested in in Formula One is how the car behaves in your, so not just the, the side slip angle of going around the corner, but also what happens in with crosswind. Um, and obviously in bikes, the, the problem is even harder because the um, the car, the, the bike is going much slower, so it doesn't take a lot of wind to, to generate quite a high yaw angle. So actually one of the first things um, we did was set about designing a completely novel probe shape to, um, to capture that. Um, and then once you've got that, the rest of it is actually quite similar to what I did on the Formula One car where we were taking the power from the, from the rider similar to having a, um, a power 
um, sensor on the input shaft from the engine. Um, and then we can measure <coughs> elevation and speed. And then the equation is actually exactly the same. But if you just if you were looking just at efficiency of um, of straight ahead into a headwind or or just a tailwind, but and the bicycle that's one thing. But then you put a, a rider on it like our very own Chris Hoy here, um, and, yes. and suddenly it's like putting a a forty foot Arctic on the saddle of your bicycle. You know, his his thighs are probably bigger than my waist. <laughs> is that right, Chris? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess certainly compared to your average um, road cyclist, professional cyclist who are all little little whippets, yeah, the track sprinters are a very different shape, different breed. And the biggest thing is that you're, you know, you, people tend to focus on equipment for bikes. They look at helmets, they look at clothing, they look at all their latest gear. But actually, if you want to improve one thing to go faster on a bike, it's it's your, your riding position because your frontal area, about 80-odd percent of it comes from from your body so yeah that, that is why it's so absolutely vital to be in an aerodynamic position and to be able to learn how to get yourself into the most efficient position the most aerodynamic position to go faster but i've i've worked with many aerodynamics over the years and the you know the chase for this peaky downforce just to get the the downforce number up is always compelling whereas you know for you riding the bike um the compromise is, is getting your energy into the pedals uh, where do you where do you draw the line on that, uh, Barney? Is there a big thing of aerodynamics fighting the human element? Yeah, I I, I think that there definitely is. There's a um, part of what we're concerned with with the bike measurement is trying to get the rider into an aerodynamic position, but also a position that he can sustain. Um, because if you're putting putting power, if you're in the most aerodynamic position, your your power won't be optimum. Um, so there's a balance there and that balance depends on what you're doing. So actually I, I saw a video a couple of days ago of, I think it was Chris Froome who was lying down in a, like a Superman position on the saddle, overtaking people downhill who were pedaling frantically, um, which is a perfect demonstration of actually, you know, in the right conditions, you don't need any power. You just need, need to be fully aerodynamic, but in others, um, like especially what Chris used to do um, on the, on the track, you've got to be able to kind of, balance that power and the aerodynamics and actually part of what our device can do is tell you what the um what the trade-off is between those two so you can start to understand how to get the best um combination of the two so it's a compromise between rider energy but do you find anything uh, compromising you chris as far as whenever you're sort of trying to achieve that aero position and think and i need to sort of get out of the saddle or i need to do, do something different here yeah, well, the hard the hard part for me was not having any real guidance in the early years. So you know now, British cycling, a very professional setup. From if you're 14, 15, 16 years of age with potential, um, there is a clear pathway. And from a very early point, you are taught about the importance of you know optimizing your position, developing it at a young age. Whereas for me, it was all about just guesswork and you know, uh, establishing bad habits. It's a bit like golf, you know, establishing a bad swing. Trying to change that later on down the years is very difficult. It's much easier to start at the right point, establish good practice, and then you can maintain that as you get older. So for me, I had, my elbows used to come out, I'd sort of, uh, you know, when, when, you're under, when you're under stress, you tend to revert back to that, that bad habit. So the last half lap of a sprint or a Kieran, you start shifting forward in the saddle, you start opening up your hips, you're basically becoming like a big parachute and you're, you're trying to do, you're doing that because you're trying to get more force through the pedals, trying to create more power in those last gasp efforts. 
Um, but it is, it's a massive trade-off between being able to get that power out as you fatigue and maintain that form. So, you know, there have been a couple of um, products which have measured aerodynamic drag coefficient in the past. They haven't been particularly reliable. Um, that's been their downfall. But what there hasn't been is been this onboard sensor that can actually give you real-time feedback as to how you're holding your position and how you're maintaining your position. So um, I think this is one of the, you know, the aero sensor is fantastic and it's, that's the main one that people are focusing on. But the aero body, which is the, the little gadget that tells you if you're holding that position, is going to be equally equally impressive, I think. So, Barney, what, what sort of data would you gather from a run um, to sort of sit down with the rider and discuss when he was in the right position on the bike or when he was in the wrong position and, and how that influenced it, well his speed, I suppose it might be? What sort of data do you gather? So, so, so we've got, as, as Chris um, just mentioned, we've got, as, as well as the device that measures the aerodynamic drag, we have um, AeroBody, which uses a, a laser-based measurement, a little bit like a, a ride-height laser on a F1 car, actually, um, that's pointing at different positions on the rider body. Um, so we can uh, we can correlate the aerodynamic drag to the to the body position. So as he's going round with each lap or up and down the road, um, we're measuring aerodynamic drag, wind, your angle, speed, power, all of that stuff, as well as his body position. So um, there's actually quite a few things there, and and this is where it can become for, for people who are very into their kind of technical data, it can become quite interesting because you can start to um, pick apart what's influencing your drag. Is it the wind yaw? Because there's, there's a big thing in formula in, in cycling, the aero wheels, the, the more aero they are, you, you can, with a bit of crosswind, you can get this sail effect where actually you get a little bit of thrust from the wheels. So the drag of the bike overall drops with wind yaw angle up to a certain point like 10 or 11 degrees and then the 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 wheel stalls and that pops up again so we we can put all that data together to start to understand how the conditions are affecting the drag um and even down to what wheels a rider should be using say on a on a time trial stage depending on what the wind conditions are like um yeah. So you would be able to advise the team as to what, how the bike setup should be for a given uh, day's, as you say, atmospheric conditions? Yeah, for, for, for example, on, on a Tour de France um, time trial stage, the riders will do a recce um, before doing the stage. So we, we can have them run our sensor um, to, to map out what the wind's looking like around the um, around the course. We might find, actually, that when you look at the, the real-time wind, if, if you've got a wind... Uh, a weather station it's giving you an average wind speed um and let's say that's 10 degrees wind that gives you a 10 degree wind your angle if it's gusty we've actually seen that with a um, mean wind your angle of 10 degrees we can be seeing between plus 30 and minus 20 which means that using your steady state data the wheel might be fine but in with the real gusts the, the wheel wheel's constantly stalling and it won't work um so therefore the the, the uh, team might decide to put a slightly less aero wheel on that's more stable at high winds, your angles. And, and that, Chris, for you, that you can see differences in that, can you, if you do back-to-back tests? Yeah, I mean, I for, for me, I was always on the velodrome and, and any there were open-air velodromes, which uh, we did compete on, but the, the major championships were always indoors. So you, it, there was less of an issue when it came to crosswinds, but there were circulating winds in velodromes. There were even stories of um, 
at certain races where it was a time trial where riders would go on one after the other. Um, of doors being opened in the concourse to allow air to circulate to slow down the subsequent riders um, after the home rider had been, you know, all sorts of things. So the wind, wind does affect, um, or air circulation can affect um, cycling even in a vel- even in a closed velodrome. So all these things, and also when you're in a, um, you know, if you're in a team pursuit and there's so it's not just your own air that you're having to consider, but there's other riders around you too, and the influence and the effect of their air breaking and, and uh, you know, the disruption in the air, it's, yeah, there, there's all kinds of factors you have to consider on the velodrome. Yeah, I mean, the velodrome, it's a bit like Indianapolis in a way, you know, there's a lot of people talk about the fact that once you've got all the cars out there, 30 cars, that the actual air starts to circulate with the cars, whereas you go out on your own and you're on your own, the car, the, the aerodynamics are completely different. Do you, do you find that yeah. in the velodrome, that, you know, yeah, do you get this movement you, of air? So before... Maybe about half an hour before you the racing starts, the track will be full of riders all warming up, and that's as a sprinter. That's when you do your final warm up sprint effort. And the number of times you get up on the track and you absolutely smash it, your coach has timed it, and you look at the time and you think, "Whoa, you know, today's the day I'm absolutely flying." And then you go up half an hour later and you're maybe five hundredths of a second slower, and you, you're scratching your head. And, and over time, you sort of went, "Wait a minute!" You can actually feel as a spectator sitting right on the barrier, you can feel the air blowing, you know, circulating as it goes around. So it's common sense. You have, of course, all these riders circulating in the same direction. It's creating this kind of vortex and and you are going to get a tailwind. So uh, apparently you've got another friend, not only Chris, uh, a guy called uh, Henry, Henry the Hoover, Barney. I think you told a funny story about how using Henry the Hoover as uh, a bit of a F1 development. Oh, yeah. No, no exactly. So, so on, on my um, last sort of permanent job in in formula one i was working for mercedes and i was in charge of the group that was doing the f duct um if you remember that and we we had quite a a system i was pretty proud of actually initially that would use um it was basically built around the causing the wing to stall at high speed so when air would start blowing through a slot above a certain speed and we were we were testing these devices by you know applying a pressure drop to to them, and we, we built a using very expensive fans and equipment. We built a, a, a rig to optimize this. And then um, one evening with my friend Aaron Melvin, who's now head of aerodynamics at Haas, we were there one evening um, testing something, and the fan wasn't drawing enough, and the cleaner left their door open next to where we were. And I thought, well, what happens if we just try a Hoover? A Henry Hoover. So um, out the Hoover came. We, we we rigged it up, and it worked. It worked perfectly, actually. And so the, so the, I think the wings that we rang up ran up to um, Shanghai that year were developed with the Hoover. <laughs> um, and but 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 by the end of the year, actually, they, they they built this whole rig with I think seven or eight Hoovers with these big taps and everything in, to um to actually kind of make make formalize formalize the process of developing their wings with with hoovers but that, that's what i sort of like everyone like thinks of formula one as being very high-end very techy but actually if, if a hoover is the right tool for the job then um there's no need to use anything else i did the same sort of thing really way back in the, the early 90s when, when we had the blown diffusers uh with the jordan car and we used a, a hoover to simulate the flow through the uh, the exhaust pipes so you could run the wind tunnel and, and just get the, get the forces and then switch on the Hoover and, and see what the change of the forces was like. So it was, it it it, it worked quite well. <laughs> um, well, in those days it worked quite well. Now you'd have to spend a few a few hundred thousand uh, dollar dollars on something more elaborate and shiny. Yeah, Dyson. 
<laughs> Dyson, yeah, 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 yeah. Just buy a more expensive Hoover, you mean, Chris? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so going back, do you think you've learned anything from this this project you're working with to t- you could take back to F1? I mean, is there is there a learning curve going the other way around? Yeah, there, there actually is. We've um, so as, as I mentioned at the beginning, we we, we developed this new. Um, probe shape which we've now patented um i did it with a friend called john buckley um at, at bellisense and that's because that is optimized to, to work at um low speeds and high crosswind angles um we thought well actually maybe we've got something here that we could apply back to formula one so we've we've, we've shrunk it down and made this out of sintered um stainless steel actually um, it, it's a hollow structure, so it only weighs 20 grams or so, even though it's steel. Um, and now we have two Formula One teams um, on track using it. So if, if you look, look up and down the, the grid, you'll see two cars um, running it because it gives such consistent results across the wind your um, angle spectrum, if you like. Yeah, I'm, I'm involved in an electric bike not trying to swear here, Chris, about electric uh, electric assistance. It's, it's a, a road bike, a racing bike, as such. Um, and we we sort of spend all the time we can trying to save ten grams here or there on the bike. I mean, the the bike now uh, weighs eight and a half kilograms, so it's a wow. it's a very light electric bicycle, and it can give you quite give you about thirty percent assistance for the normal individual. Um, how do you go about that? I mean, the compromise of weight, obviously. What I complain about is we're doing everything we can for the, the bike to be as light as possible. And then we set this bloke on top of it that could vary 20 or 30 kilograms. Um, but how do you sort of do that with your with your bikes, With obviously with data logging on the bikes and, and trying to make that the right compromise? Weight's very important, obviously. Yeah, I mean, for, for us on the track, so the 6.9 kilos is the minimum weight allowed by UCI. And that's the same on track as it is on the road, which is a bit crazy when you think about it because a road bike's got brakes and gears and everything yeah, else yeah, yeah. Um, so for us we actually had to add weights to bring like some of the smaller riders we had to actually put ballast onto the bike to bring that bike up to weight so so adding on power cranks parameters or potentially aerodynamic measuring aids you know any little things it, the weight isn't an issue um, it was more you know like the, we, we did take parameters off at the Olympic Games because we thought let's take everything off we don't need let's you know keep the bike as simple and and even just from a um, the structural rigidity the, the stiffness of the cranks the the non-power meters were actually better than the regular power meters so we took it all off for the Olympic Games the Olympics were the only time we didn't have any data measuring or data logging um, instruments on the bikes which is a kind of a it's a shame in a way because it'd be nice to have all that data from that one race where you really are truly at your very best and you can you can use that as your benchmark. But um, in terms of our, you know, in terms of AeroSensor, in terms of our product, um, it's incredibly light. I mean, Barney will give you the exact the weight of them, but it's, it's you know, it weighs next to nothing. Um, so it's, yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't affect in terms of extra weight on the bikes. It's not a big problem. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. So Barney, yeah, going into what you use for data logging, can you explain that all to us, what it would do? Yeah, so, 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 so the device itself... Um 
so, so what we've done is we've, we've embedded the um, the calculation of drag inside the device. So it, it weighs about 40, I think 42 grams um, and sits on, on the on the bike. And, and that gathers the data from, from a speed sensor and a power meter, which are, are both very common in cycling now, does the calculation and then sends that data to a Garmin. So the, the speed sensor, the power meter and the Garmin will normally be there on the bike anyway, or, or other computer, um, bike computers are available, of course. Um, and the the device itself is quite quite light. So when 40, as I say, 40 grams. So I, I don't think it's really going to make any difference because aerodynamics, as Chris said earlier, is so important. Um, and I think going on, on the flats, somewhere between 85 and 90 percent of the rider's power is just going into aerodynamic drag. Um, Whereas weight is a much much smaller effect, and on the on the flat it's it's nothing. Um, up up a hill it's more significant. So actually, although people get very concerned about weight and shaving every last gram off their bike, aerodynamics is a is a um, order of magnitude more important. So um, it, they are actually better off running it if it means that they're always in a more aerodynamic um, position. So do you find that uh, the challenge of making a rider and a bike work more efficiently is greater than F the F1 challenge or is it uh, just the same but different? Um, it, 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 it's the same in, in, in some respect. I, I guess the, the, the big difference is the in Formula 1, it's, it's purely the shape of the car which you're responsible for designing. So if you design it right and um, it's made, a, made to design, then there's not much that can go wrong. Um, and as, as you were talking, I think last last week about the um, the effect of um, wet tires, for example, on a Formula One car, there are a few things that can cause correlation issues. But by and large, the car is as you expect. The challenge with cycling is so educating the, the, the riders how to position their bodies, and then also trying to make sure that they stay in that position. Um, a couple of years ago, we did some tests with professional riders some some of the best tt riders in the world on a velodrome we were doing wheel testing and we were getting quite inconsistent results during the day and we, we noticed and as, as all good aerodynamicists will know you always start and finish with your baseline so you'll do your baseline wheel do all of your changes and then finish with the baseline same as we do in, in f1 um, and that baseline was moving and with our aero body we showed that it was because these riders again some of the best in the world who thought they were being consistent were slowly shifting up as they got tired so it's it's all about consistency is it, is a hard thing in in cycling aer aerodynamics which um is better controlled in f1 it's one of the worst parts one of the, one of the hardest parts we used to do not a huge amount of wind tunnel testing but we did some wind tunnel testing maybe 10 20 years ago and as you're saying barney there the hardest part was that you had to sit on exactly the same spot on the saddle you know, bearing in mind, I'm, I'm racing for maximum of one minute in my event. So you're in a very extreme position. It's incredibly uncomfortable. You're sitting on, you know, probably about a, a square inch of your saddle on the, the most sensitive part of your body. And, uh, you know, you've got, you weigh 90 kilos pressing down on that, whatever. Um, and you're doing maybe eight, 10 hours in the wind tunnel. And by the end of the day, you're so, so tender and so sore that it is almost impossible to maintain that exact posture in that position. So, um, Basically, to try and it's not the same as doing it, but it, to try and get some of the testing done without having to use these inconsistent and frustrating people, the athletes, um, they, they created, they've got like a 3D scan of 
a small, medium and large size rider. So there was myself, I think Vicky Pendleton and uh, I think perhaps Jason Kenny was the other rider. Anyway, 3D scanned and basically built Chris's brother, Vicky's sister, Jason's brother, and put them on the bike for the majority of the, the, the basic testing. If it was, you know, the helmets or, or a bit different kit or whatever. So they used like a, a model rather than using a real-time dynamic person. You, you've driven quite a few cars as well, Chris, um, you know, from touring cars through to, to cars that have got downforce, ground effect, whatever. Um, so how do you how do you compare that? Obviously, the aerodynamics are still the same. You've got to drive the car to uh, to use the, the, what the car is. Do you, do you find that as a, a challenge or do you, do you relate to that? Um, so driving is very different. Yeah, you're right, because it's this thing you can't see. It doesn't, you know, you, you, you trust in the pro drivers, you trust in the engineers, you can look at the data, but it is a leap of faith to finally fling your, you know, you get to what you think is the limit of yourself and of the car going into Cops or Abbey or whatever at Silverstone. And they say, no, you just have to keep it flat, keep that foot down. And every, every ounce of your being is trying to keep that right pedal to the floor. But there's just something that, that just lifts your foot up. And every time you do that, the car unsettles. So to, to break through that and to actually have faith in physics um, is the key thing. And it's, it's weird. So when you finally crack it, once you've proved it to yourself, then you, then you know it's there, then you can use it. But in cycling, aerodynamics, it's more, it's hard to explain. It's, it's just a feeling of like, you're, like the wind has changed or you've got a slight tailwind or you're, just, you, you just, you're slicing through the air with the same effort, but you're going faster. And it's just a magic feeling when you, like at the Olympic Games, when you get all your, the best kit on, we always used to save our best, Clothing, the best kit, the lightest wheels, the, the, the best stuff until you really wanted to use it. So we had really good equipment and then we had our special equipment. And that feeling, you know, in the last training camp, three weeks before, you put all the good kits on and you're coming to your physical peak and everything's is this perfect storm. It, it feels incredible. So although it's very different to going into a fifth gear corner flat in a LMP2, it's it's the same you, you get a little, you get a, a special tingle from both if, if I can put it that way you, you mentioned cops here at Silverstone and uh, one of the stories that goes around a lot is that Patrick Head who was technical director of Williams once told Nigel Mansell that you know the faster he goes around cops the more grip he will have so Nigel being Nigel just go into cops and just keep it pegged because he was told by Patrick Head he will have more grip <laughs> Is that, is that the same with the bicycle? You're told you will go faster if you just sit on that saddle properly and blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, it, it's because obviously all the, the, the aerodynamicists just are like, well, just just hold this position. You know, why, why won't you? You know, <laughs> yeah. you can see the data. Just get yourself in that, that tight position. But it's, and it's not just power. So you look at endurance athletes, the time trialists, the road guys, they're sustaining, you know, maybe 10% of the power that we guys would do for, for two or three seconds for our, our pure peak power. So it's, it's a very different challenge trying to hold a really efficient position when you're kicking out. I mean, we were kicking out in terms of torque, 700 newton meters of torque for the first half, half rev, which, you know, that's, that's comparable to some uh, serious, serious engines out there as in motorsport engines. Um, obviously only up until about 10 RPM. We're not doing that at thousands of RPM. Um, but we are producing a lot of force, a lot of power. And it is that you know, you're physically, you're, biomechanically, you're not able to do that if your hip angle becomes too acute or if you're, 
if you aren't able to brace in a way that that you can have that 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 core stability um, and everything starts to flex. So as soon as the it's like a chain. As soon as soon as you start applying that kind of force with the legs, then the hips need to be anchored. Then it's the core. Then it you know your trunk. Then it's your arms and shoulders. So if if it's if that chain isn't solid, if that isn't a secure foundation, there'll be flex. There'll be movement. You'll you'll waste energy. And yes, you know, yes, you might be able to hold an aero position, but you won't be able to get anything like the power through the pedals. So, as as Barney said, it's it's a balancing act. It's a compromise between keeping aero, but also being able to get that true peak power and peak force through the pedals. So, Barney, this new aero sensor you got. What what's the next step? Have you got another step? Yes, it was. So at the moment, we've um, and it's been in development for about four years. Um, because as it turns out, it's quite a, quite a complicated things to do thing to do. Um, but now it's working. Um, I'm just gearing up for a to, to sell it. We're doing an Indiegogo campaign. Um, in the next couple of weeks, uh, this week I'm at Eurobike. Um, trying to trying to raise our our profile. So at, at the moment, it's all about trying to um trying to raise um let people know what we've got and hopefully get get them interested because i'm convinced that this this is going to be very um significant for cyclists as as in motorsport it took people the world cutting on to the importance of aerodynamics i think cycling is is now very much catching up with that um and so this is going to become um key to people's uh, training programs so just to sum up chris with all this technology available now do you think there's a, a comeback for chris hoy <laughs> Sadly, no. I think there's more chance to be being a Formula One world champion, um, but and that's and there's no chance of that. So, um, but no, it's um, <laughs> it's funny though because I look back now and I, I think I, you know, I, I would have loved to have had this around at the time. You know, we were very lucky as a team to have access to the wind tunnel down in Southampton. But even so, you know, I probably did about two sessions a year in the wind tunnel, and it was always about equipment. It was always about clothing. It was about um, the bike. It was it was never you know at the end of each eight hour, 10 hour session, you might get 20 minutes for free form play and you would be looking at your position then. But by that point, as I mentioned earlier, you were bruised and battered and you wanted just to get off that bloody bike. So to have have a tool that you could not only find your, your own personal optimal position, but then have a little gadget that reminds you how to stay in that position constantly throughout each training session, I think would have been massive for me. And um, particularly, as I said, because in the start of my career, my position was so poor that you know, it, I needed to have that constant reminder to keep it in. So, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, there, there have been riders over the years that have come back and, and sort of made not comebacks, but they've come back to, to do to, to have a benchmark test to see how fast they can go with all the new equipment. Francesco Moser, who was the world hour record holder, famously came back in his fifties and had a go at the, the hour record using Graham O'Brien's um, tuck position, and he went quicker than he went in his in his prime. So. Technology, um, not just equipment, but technology and understanding of, of how we prepare, how we train, the aerodynamics, all these factors will constantly see riders getting faster and faster. So it's, and it's, it's the same with anything. There's always progression and evolution, but it's fascinating to watch. But the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, uh, the old saying is every day and every way we learn something new. Barney and, and Chris, thank you very much. That was uh, lovely to hear about it and good luck with your, uh, with your project. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Gary. That was um, excellent. Really enjoyed that. Thanks very much. That was fun.
Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in Formula One, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might answer it on a future episode. So just record a voice note on your phone and send it to us at podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at therace.com and make sure you let us know who you are in your message. Today's question comes from someone with a particularly appropriate name for this podcast, given Gary Anderson's presence, but we'll let him introduce himself. Hi, Ed and Gary. Jordan Ford here. Yep, that's my real name. McLaren have recently been testing their 2021 car with Carton Herter, and apart from, of course, sussing out a new driver and seeing how he fares... I was wondering what the teams really gain from testing a previous year's model, especially when the cars are so much different this year compared to last year. Thank you very much. Well, Gary, we've got to approach, uh, we've got to address that name first. Jordan Ford, very appropriate. Yeah, it is uh, very appropriate. Um, I don't know when he was born, but if it was one nineteenth of the first of some year, it would be pretty good. Um, probably not. Yeah, yeah. Just going on to the question. Um, the, the big thing is really that obviously you're not allowed to test this year's cars. That's, that's the end of the story. So you have to do the best you can. And the best you can is to try to, is running last year's car with new drivers in it. And really, you've got more data for last year's car. You know more about how it works. You can obviously optimize it a little bit better than you can this year's cars. So it's, it, it is about new drivers. The only thing you could do is probably work a little bit on how you deploy the the energy, you know, the 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 uh, errors package, how you work all that, how you re- recharge the system better, because all that is relative, but it is really only relative to the track that you're actually running on, because you always try to optimize that from simulation, and then when you get to the track, you may fiddle with it a little bit, but a lot of that can be done with simulation. I mean, you're trying to get the maximum into the battery pack that you can, and you're trying to get the maximum out of the battery pack that gives you more performance. So a lot of that can be done with simulation. As long as the car has good traction coming off the corner, then you can use the, the extra power. So I don't think running last year's car is a lot of good for the team other than to look at other drivers. Uh, each team has to run two inexperienced drivers in a Friday practice session. Um, so they're looking for the best driver to put in there because the last thing you want to do is destroy a, a driver's career just because you're giving them an opportunity on a on a Friday morning. And that's the easy thing to do, especially with these guys that are pretty good at what they're doing. So you've got to be very careful with it. So I think McLaren are, are doing the best thing they can to make sure they're giving whoever gets that Friday morning opportunity the best opportunity possible for his future career. Whether it's with McLaren or not is really immaterial. It's just that you have to show your professionalism at some point in time, and I think McLaren are doing that very well with giving them seat time in one of last year's cars to get used to what Formula 1 is, because the cars will be different to drive this year, but there's the difference is you know 10% relative to what the, the difference of a Formula 1 car compared to an Indy car is, so they're getting really up to speed with Formula 1, then they'll have to adapt a little bit to the, to the 2022 cars, but you know, that's that's a small percentage relative. So uh, I think McLaren are doing a good job with giving them that opportunity. Well, there's always a great answer there from Gary. So do send your questions through to podcast at the race.com if you'd like your question to be answered on a future episode. 
Well, thanks very much, Gary, as always, for your insight. We've got another Grand Prix coming up this weekend in Hungary, so I'm sure that'll produce plenty of talking points. So join us next week on the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco, for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.